Fall back, please. Just a little bit more. A little bit more, Lauren. Am I done or yeah? Um, Imre, how was yesterday? That's good. Encouraging us to um, focus on Christ as we just come together today to worship and praise Him as the exchange and to uh, glorify Him and lift Him up as our great and supreme treasure. 
which he is. There's nothing in this world that can uh, come anywhere near what Christ offers us through, um, through his uh, life, through his death, through his uh, resurrection and all these achieved for us and the life that he now calls us into. So uh, thank you for doing that for us. What a blessing that is. Okay, um, let's, let's jump into it. We're in uh, the book of John, John's Gospel, and uh, we're up to uh, chapter 9 today as we think about what um, John is uh, saying to us here as he's uh, written this book about 2,000 years ago, probably about not, maybe 1,900 years ago, they might have us uh, believe, and uh, he's writing to uh, help us to have faith in Christ. And uh, today, uh, as we look at chapter 9, we need to think about um, when sometimes we come across a situation, we might have two different reactions to, uh, to a situation. It could be something um, that's really tragic that's taken place. And it's amazing how when you get two people maybe look at that same tragic situation, you can get two different reactions. Some people can really react in grief or pain as, as they sort of feel the, um, what's taken place in this tragedy. And other times people can look across and sort of focus on, well, they probably deserve what they got. It's amazing how sometimes, even in a tragic situation, you can get two very vastly different reactions uh, that can come from that. And today here, as we look at uh, John chapter 9, we're going to see something uh, like that. We're going to see a, an incredible miracle that Jesus performs. Uh, and then we're going to see two very different reactions um, to that miracle as, as it out as it outplays itself through uh, through John nine. So um, if you've got your Bibles, just head to uh, John nine, and uh, we'll just read the first um, seven verses there of that. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered him, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Father, thank you. Thank you again today that we get this great privilege to open up this passage of Scripture here. Uh, thank you for inspiring John, uh, the writer of this book, and giving him thoughts and uh, him pulling down his uh, recollections that he felt to inspire us with today uh, to put our faith and our trust in Christ. And I ask now that, Holy Spirit, you would help us to uh, see here uh, this incredible miracle of this blind man, but also, Lord, the two vastly different reactions that we have from this. And uh, pray, Lord, from a soft heart to a hard heart, that you would grant us to have soft hearts, that we be receptive of who you are and what you're doing and have done for us in our lives. Uh, Lord, we ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, John's whole idea of writing this book is to urge us to believe in Jesus Christ. John writes at the end of the book, I write these things so you would believe. So John here is recording all sorts of events and situations that show the remarkable person of Jesus Christ. As he goes through this book, as he pulls out various things that uh, come back to his mind that the Holy Spirit inspires him with, he's trying to show us the remarkable person of Jesus Christ. And there's a whole range of supernatural miracles 
that, and healings that defy the rational mind here that uh, John records for us. And this all points to the deity uh, of Jesus Christ. What Jesus does is only something that God Almighty can do. When we look at what Jesus is doing through many of these things, all of these things, only God can do that. So John's trying to help us get this faith here and grow this faith in us as we see what Jesus has done and reflect on him uh, as God in the flesh. And as we see in this chapter here today, we only just read the first few verses and we'll sort of pick out some other ones as we go through. But Jesus randomly selects a blind beggar who's never seen the light of day. That first part of the passage says he's been blind since birth. So here he is. Uh, He's gathered around a pool with a bunch of other beggars with all sorts of um, ailments or physical whatevers or this is where they used to go to. So Jesus has randomly selected this blind beggar out from around this pool and uh, from birth this man has been born blind. Uh, This man has never, he's lived in a world of darkness. He's only ever seen what you see at night time when your eyes are closed and that's nothing short of darkness. And he's only ever moved around with help, someone leading him or guiding him to somewhere or by sensitive touch or feel. And it's amazing how blind people really do uh, grow in their other senses. Certainly hearing and touch becomes uh, very, very uh, sensitive to them and very reactive. He's only ever known one thing this blind man, that is to get himself organised each morning and to head down to the beggar's spot and to beg for arms. That's all he's ever known basically his entire life. You could possibly imagine the routine that he goes through each day. He gets out of bed with some help and he gets perhaps a little bit of breakfast and then he's led down by somebody uh, down to the beggar's pool and there he uh, sits and he waits, takes his spot and then he begins to listen if people are coming by, if someone's swinging close to him and then he'll call out for some money if he hears that somebody's coming nearby. That's what he does. Day after day, this is what the blind man's life is all about. He has no holidays or vacations to get excited about. He has no career aspirations that he's working towards. He's just thinking, today, I hope I get enough money to be able to take home to my parents, or if he's not with his parents, but actually this chapter he is, with his parents to buy some more food to uh, maintain himself and uh, help the family wherever he can. In steps, Jesus of Nazareth. <coughs> in steps Jesus of Nazareth here, his disciples, and his disciples seem to look right past the plight of this blind man. They seem to look right past that, and they sort of have this, call it a theological or spiritual question they want to ask Jesus about this blind man. They said, yeah, Jesus, who sinned? This blind man or his parents that he was born blind like this? They seem like they've just missed the pathetic situation this blind man's in. Maybe instead of throwing him a couple of copper coins or a denarius or drachma, some of the the, uh, monetary values they used back then, instead of doing that, they seem to look right past this pathetic pathetic situation he's in, not having compassion or mercy upon him, and they're asking this question, why has he got like he has? That's the question the, the disciples ask, and Jesus answers that question. He deals with it and explains to them that this man hasn't been born blind because of his sinful parents or the sin he's committed. He says he's been born blind now so that God can display a miraculous work through him. Here's an opportunity, an occasion where God can display a miraculous work to, uh, particularly for Jesus here, to show his deity that he is the Son of God. And then Jesus, in a most unusual way, you'd have to say that when you read that, spitting on the ground, getting a bit of dirt and just sort of pasting it over his eyes. That's the method that Jesus chose to do. And he tells him, go down to the pool of Siloam, 
obviously get someone to lead you down, which would look quite a sight. Here's this man just sort of mud caked all over his face and his eyes, takes him down to the pool and says, wash in the pool and then uh, you will receive your sight. Uh, pretty sort of strange way of doing things. Now, I don't think there's anything really significant in that procedure. There's obviously an act of faith that, you know, look, okay, look, stick the spit in my eyes in the mud and do all that. But I don't think we're meant to read too much into it to think, okay, is that the healing sort of, you know, formula now? Do we all go outside and find a bit of dirt and spit on it and then put it on somebody's elbow or their eyes or their ears? That's not what John's trying to communicate to us here with this sort of quite strange uh, situation. Anyway, the blind man's led away. He goes and washes his eyes and now he comes back seeing. It's a miracle. That is an absolute miracle. It's a miracle of massive proportions. Nobody does that. Who actually says, go and spit in the ground, get some mud, stick it on your eyes, go away and wash, and you'll be seen? It's astounding. At the very least, uh, to be called a man in John's day, as they called this uh, blind beggar a man, he must have at least been 13 years old. They would, they would deem you then at 13, 14 in the Jewish uh, community, you are actually entering into manhood. That's a far cry from where we live in Australia today in the Western world. I know there's some guys that are probably in their 30s and they're still not men. They're like grown-up boys. But anyway, in Jewish culture, 13 years old, 14 years old, you are, you are now actually maturing and considered to be a man. Let's give him a few more years on top of that. Maybe he's 20. So for every day of his life, perhaps 20 years or more now, he's seen nothing but darkness. That's all he's seen. And now he's seeing for the very first time the light of day. For the very first time he's actually seeing things would be an incredible experience for this guy, an amazing experience. What would you expect the reaction to be to this incredible occasion as others around him saw what took place? How would those around this blind man respond to hearing and seeing him now walking unaided about this supernatural event that would take place, that has taken place? Well, it's really surprising the reactions that we get to this event. And I'm sure the blind man was overjoyed. I'm sure he was actually ecstatic. He was probably confused, thinking all these images racing into his eyes now he'd never actually associated before, all these voices he'd heard but never seen these people, he's now seeing them for the first time. And I expect that some of the community would have joined in with this man with great jubilation and excitement as they saw him seeing these things and expressing exactly what he's done, thinking about this miracle that Jesus has performed on him. Probably was a few who did do that, the joining with that celebration. But also here we have some reactions in this chapter, which in one way are surprising, but in another way not so surprising. There are some that we meet in this chapter who are mocking and doubtful about this blind man and are anything but excited that he's actually experienced this supernatural miracle and now he's seeing for the first time. This miracle that Jesus has so graciously uh, performed on him. These people who are acting quite differently, these people are hardened hardened and resistant to the work of God. And they refuse to acknowledge something that is blatantly staring them in the face here through this miracle that Jesus has performed. And this is exactly where we want to go today as we think about this uh, message here from Jesus Christ. For some people who have a soft heart, the gospel is a message of salvation. For those who react with a soft heart, the gospel becomes a message of salvation and joy. And for those others whose hearts are hard, the gospel becomes a message that deepens them, sadly and unfortunately, into God's judgment. 
with a hard heart. The blind man, though, he represents for us somebody who has a soft heart. Somebody who has received Jesus Christ as his salvation and his deep joy, not only from the miracle, but actually also the unveiling and the spiritual eyes of his heart, that Jesus has saved him from a deeper problem than his blindness, and that is his sinfulness. This is what the blind man represents for us today as we see him uh, experience this supernatural miracle of Christ and then come to faith by the end of this chapter. Actually, Jesus told a parable early in the book of Mark about different hearers and their hearts, the way they would receive this message of the gospel. It's in Mark chapter 4, verse 3 to 8. So I'll just read this through, then we'll interpret it as well. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, sorry. Uh, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. It's probably a familiar parable for many of you here as you uh, read that with me up on the screen. Jesus here is uh, giving a parable about the sower and the seed. The seed is the word of God. And it goes out to various types of people. And what we see there is people at various, perhaps, stages of where their heart is at. So Jesus goes on to interpret this for the disciples because they're sort of thinking, okay, what does this mean, Jesus? You've given us a word picture here of of seed and birds and thorns and thistles and all types of things. So Jesus goes on and interprets this word picture here for the disciples. And he says this later in uh, chapter 4 of Mark. The sower sows the word. So it's the word of God that goes out. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. He's talking about the seed that lands on the path. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away that word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. They take it into themselves somewhat. And then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word or on account of being a follower of Jesus, immediately they fall away. It's taken no real deep root within them. And others are the ones who sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Other things come in and crowd into their life and in some sense hardens their heart and it just doesn't take hold at all, the word of God or the gospel. Verse 20, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Verse 20 here is the picture of the blind man. He's the one who's got the good soil. He's the one who's got a heart that is soft and pliable and able to receive that seed. The good soil is likened here to the soft heart as Jesus, as Jesus interprets uh, this parable for the disciples and for us today. It readily accepts the gospel. It's here where the gospel can put its roots deep down into the heart and begin to grow in the life of a person who has that soft heart. It's this heart that receives and accepts what Jesus has got to say. This is what a soft heart looks like. It's a person who willingly 
listens and thinks over what is said. They might go away and they'll reflect and they'll meditate about what they've just heard. They'll roll it over in their minds and they won't just discount it straight away. They'll actually think about it. They'll get a quiet moment through the day or the evening and they'll find a nice park bench somewhere in the park and they'll just think about what they've just been told. The soft heart then weighs all that up. Thinks about the pros and the cons and the fors and the against. All number of ways it weighs it up. And then the soft heart comes to the conclusion here that the message is the truth. That what I've heard about Jesus is the truth. And this truth needs to be accepted, obeyed and followed. But very often with a soft heart though, there's a process that takes place with this sort of acceptance and uh, obedience and following. Sometimes it can be amazingly instantaneous, but very often it's a process that takes place here for this soft heart to receive and to believe. And the blind man here perhaps is a picture of this process as we follow him through this chapter. This chapter actually is, is, is it's like a mini-drama here. If you read through it, that you'll find like seven various scenes that take place in this chapter, chapter 9 here. And it sort of gives us a bit of a process of this blind man coming to faith by the very end of this chapter. In verses 1 to 7, which we read before, this blind man's perhaps never encountered Jesus before. May have heard of him once or twice, but maybe not. And he hasn't even seen him, obviously, because he's blind. Jesus plucks him from the crowd and amazingly restores his sight. Probably, quite probably, this is the first encounter that he's ever had with Jesus. That's the start, perhaps, for this blind man. The next scene we find in this chapter comes in verses 8 and 12. And we have this blind man explaining himself to the neighbours and friends. Because they're sort of, hey, what's happened? How, did, how, did, how can you see? And if you, if you were to read in there, he doesn't really know. Perhaps verse 11 gives us a good picture. He doesn't really know who it is. He just thinks, it, this, this man called Jesus just told me to go wash my eyes. He's not sort of, you know, two in the picture at this point in time. Then the next scene is we have the blind man he's brought to the Pharisees in verses 13 to 17 to explain himself. Maybe just here, the picture's becoming a little bit clearer for this blind man in this process here of coming to faith. In verse 17, he says this after being questioned by the Pharisees, you know, who is this person that did this to you? Tell us about him. So the blind man responds to them as they, as they say here in 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? The blind man responds, he is a prophet. That's a big call back in those days to call somebody a prophet. That means some man who's a very um, man who walks closely with God. So the blind man recognises Jesus at this point as a prophet. There's something growing or developing here in this process of the blind man coming to faith. He sees Jesus as a prophet. Another scene, verse 24 to 34, is like another drama here or many scene within this drama. The blind man is brought back again before the Pharisees for a second time. And what we find here, there's a more confident blind man now willing to sort of uh, speak very confidently about Jesus. It appears like he's actually growing in his understanding of who Jesus is. The Pharisees are really quite arrogant and belittling towards him at this stage. They're uh, not happy about him at all. And they're trying to actually have a dispute with Jesus. But we see this blind man who's astounded by their refusal, the Pharisees' refusal to accept who Jesus is. The blind man's astounded by this. And he responds to them quite confidently here in verses 32 to 34. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind man. He can see this is something supernatural. If this man were not from God, he's talking about Jesus, he could do nothing. 
And they answered him, this is the Pharisees, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. You can see here a growing development within the the mind here of this blind man as the picture of Jesus becomes clearer and clearer before him. Finally, in the last scene of uh, chapter 9, we see the blind man comes to faith with another encounter with Jesus Christ. Verses 35 to 38, Jesus heard they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, Jesus speaks, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man answers, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the blind man answers, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So we can see here a really amazing journey of this blind man in in sense symbolically showing us it's a process very often takes place in the lives of people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's statistics actually out there that tell us that it probably takes up to 10 or 11 times or more for most people in the Western world to come to faith in Christ. Very rarely will it happen once in one encounter. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will remarkably do that But it takes like a number of conversations or a number of encounters or a number of different situations where they continually hear the word of the gospel and then they'll come to faith. And the soft heart here of the blind man, as he thought through and reflected and had these various encounters with Christ, gives us a real picture here of the process that the soft heart goes through in coming to faith. This is his reaction to what Jesus has done and uh, opened up his heart to see. That's one reaction. It wasn't the only reaction, unfortunately, this particular day when this event took place with this blind man. Unfortunately, other people were looking on to this uh, situation and they were doubting and they were disbelieving if the man was even blind in the first place. They were trying to totally discredit him. And in that whole process, they were ignoring the miracle of Jesus and they were hardening their hearts towards him as they just ignored what that Jesus had just done. And these hardened hearts are mainly seen, unfortunately, in the Pharisees uh, in this situation with their refusal to acknowledge Jesus and what he's done. In this chapter, it very quickly becomes known the position of the Pharisees, that they have this set against Jesus. Right from the outset, they are against him. In verse 16 of chapter 9, some of the Pharisees are responding and they say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Obviously there was some questioning there, which would indicate perhaps some softer hearts within the Pharisees. But a good percentage of them are saying, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. There's already a set against Jesus right from the get-go here. These guys with hard hearts, these Pharisees, who are concerned more about the Sabbath, are looking right past the supernatural miracle that's taken place here, through Jesus with this blind man. And instead of rejoicing, which everybody should be rejoicing when something like that takes place, whether someone gets out of a wheelchair or somebody sees for the first time or hears for the first time, instead of rejoicing with the blind man, they're saying, what sort of man are you, Jesus? You don't even keep the Sabbath. They've looked right past this incredible thing that's taken place. And if we follow this story on through this chapter, as we saw that verse before when he was talking to the blind man, they go from bad to worse. They might sort of start off questioning a little bit here on the blind man, but in the end they are quite deriding, quite abusive about Jesus towards uh, 
the blind man and uh, what they thought about Jesus and what he'd done on this particular day. Hard hearts, ignoring Christ. What is a hard heart? A hard heart is like the hearers from the parable who hear the word of God but completely dismiss it out of hand. Completely dismiss it out of hand. They will hear the truth of the gospel and they will just let it bounce right off their heart and heart. Will not give it even a moment's thought or won't even give it the light of day. And some guys like these Pharisees will just point blank reject the truth of Jesus Christ. They will not even give it one moment's slightest hesitation to really even give it a second thought. These hard hearts, they just dismiss it totally out of hand. I'm just not even going to think about it. Just shut down. No, nothing to do with it. Hard-heartedness also, though, comes in degrees. Yeah, that's probably fairly hard there. They're pretty stone-cold, these Pharisees, when it comes to listening to Jesus. They won't even consider his claims. They will not even reflect and think about what Jesus has said or done. Jesus has done and said many remarkable things to them that are true through and through. It's plain that a miracle has taken place, but they are point-blank going to ignore it. These are extremely hard hearts when it's like that. Some others, though, aren't diamond hard like the way these Pharisees are reacting. Yet, they may not be diamond hard, yet they will still resist and won't come to Jesus to be saved. And this is really disturbing for me, and I think probably for most of you it will be the same. Because sometimes we meet some really, really lovely, nice people. We might even live next door to some really, really lovely, nice people. Incredibly friendly. They'll do anything for you. If you're in trouble, sometimes these people will be the first to come and help you or ring you up and ask you, do you need a hand? Really lovely people, really nice people. Great neighbours to have, great friends to even have. But yet when you or I talk to Jesus about, uh, about Jesus with them, they'll be polite and they'll listen. But at the end of the day, they will resist the gospel. Lovely people, really lovely people. Want to talk about Jesus? They'll be polite and they'll listen, but they'll say, look, it's not for me. It's still a hard heart. It's a hard heart that's resisting the truth. And sometimes it's really hard for us to take because we see them as great people, lovely people, fantastic people. We had a friend uh, who worked in our packing shed in our orchard about 30 years ago back in the, the, the past when we used to pack fruit. And she was a lovely lady, a fantastic lady. Just the nicest lady could ever meet. We'd have a birthday in the shed and she'd bring a cake in and do all sorts of stuff. She was just a really lovely lady. In many respects, I considered her to live a more moral life than a lot of Christians that I knew. Just a really lovely lady. I thought, all I've got to do is just witness to her about Jesus. She wouldn't have to change a thing about the way she lives. She's just got to trust in Jesus and she would be just the ideal Christian. So we would share Jesus with her. And she would sit and she would be patient and listen. But at the end of the day, she didn't want Jesus. She didn't want Jesus. She had a hard heart towards the gospel, resistant towards the gospel. But when I looked at her, she was just a lovely lady. She thought she was okay without Jesus. There are degrees, degrees here of of hard-heartedness. Some are diamond hard, just stone cold. Others are lovely people, really nice people. But still, they have hard hearts and they resist the truth of the gospel. And this is what Jesus talks about here. He says, the light of the gospel, when it uh, comes into the world, for some people who soften their hearts, they will be drawn to him. And for others, 
with hard hearts, they'll become more resistant to God, to Christ and to the gospel. And Jesus makes this incredible statement here in verse 39. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Bit of a confusing thing here, perhaps what Jesus is saying when we read it on first glance. What he's saying here is this, the word of the gospel will judge people. It will, be, it will bring judgment into their lives. That those who do not see may see, Jesus says. So for those with soft hearts who acknowledge their lost state or they acknowledge their blindness, I can't see, I'm actually knowing that, hey, I'm lost, God comes and opens their eyes up so they can see the salvation that he offers through Jesus Christ. For those who think over what is said about Jesus and believe it with a soft heart, they will see. They can't see initially because they realise they're blind, but now God comes and opens their eyes up and says, hey, yes, I was blind, but now I can see. And those who see, Jesus says, may become blind. Jesus is saying, if you think you can see the way clearly ahead now, just living life the way you're living, and you can do this without me in your life, Or if Jesus says, if you think that you can do life completely ignoring me and you can make your own path because you can see where you want to go in this life, you see now, Jesus is saying, you really are blind to the truth. You may see, but really you'll become blind. You have a hard heart. You think you can see, but really you're blind to the reality of who I am and your own state. Those who see may become blind. A very big statement here that Jesus makes. And Jesus says later on in John 12, he says, at the end of the day, it's his word that will judge uh, these ones. It's the gospel, it's the truth revealed through him that actually becomes the ultimate judge. And he says in verses, uh, chapter 12, verse 47, 48, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me, the hard heart, and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. That's the judgment that the gospel brings, really unfortunately, as we think about that, that uh, it's, it's the truth of Christ that will be ultimately the judge, that will uh, judge those ones with hard hearts. You see, this is what happened, this is what has happened here in this chapter. An incredible event has taken place, a supernatural event has taken place. Jesus has revealed himself as the Son of God, but has had two reactions, two uh, vastly different reactions. One is salvation. This blind man not only has received sight, but he's actually received spiritual salvation as well. He's had his sins forgiven. And it's also produced judgment, judgment upon these Pharisees who have allowed their hearts to become even more hard to the truth of who Christ is. The blind man comes to faith and sees and the Pharisees refuse Jesus, refuse Jesus and their hearts are further hardened and they become more blind to the truth that is staring them right there in the face. Really important for us to grasp it today and to think about this as we think about this soft hearts, hard hearts as we sort of engage with this world around about us. Um, So I'll just get this iPad back into gear.
Isn't it good when you push the wrong button on the iPad? It's better. Now I can read it. I had about four words on one page there. Really important for us to grasp this as we think about um, hard hearts and soft hearts. First thing to think about is how do we how are hearts hardened? How are hearts hardened? We can harden our hearts by simply walking in disobedience to God. If you want to harden your heart towards God, just walk in disobedience to him and your heart will just grow harder and harder and more and more resistant to him. Our heart will become more and more resistant towards God if we do not allow uh, his word to grow in our hearts and we become in that point when the Holy Spirit tries to work on us and we resist it and uh, push it away, we'll become more and more insensitive to the work of God's spirit in our lives. In our lives. That's how we harden our hearts, by just rejecting, not receiving it, not thinking about it, and not allowing it to work through our souls and to work through our hearts and work through our minds. Our hearts become hardened to God. And can I say this? As I thought about this through the week, I thought really to, to resist the truth of God and to harden our hearts towards God, I just thought this, God, this has to be, the, 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 I guess, the most heightened point of insanity I can possibly think of. That we would actually resist the God who's made us. We resist the God who's created this world. That somehow we think we can live life totally ignoring God. As I thought about that, I thought that is just the the ultimate in insanity. And which it shows you the, the, the work of sin in our hearts, in hardening our hearts, it just produces this insane position that we will just reject who God is and we'll just um, push him away totally out of hand and have nothing to do with him. It is really the height of insanity to have our hearts or allow our hearts to be hardened. How to soften our hearts. To soften our hearts we need to take the grace that God provides through submitting ourselves to his wise commands, his wise instructions for our lives. Taking it on board, thinking, reflecting, and allowing it to work in and through us. Then with God's help, we develop a tender and sensitive conscience to the things of Christ and the pain of humanity's sinfulness around about us. And we develop then, with the Holy Spirit, working in us a soft and pliable heart as we receive and we reflect and we think and then we begin to obey and we begin to follow. This heart becomes soft as we now respond to what Jesus has done in our lives. There's probably a whole other sermon in both those two things, but if we, re, if we don't uh, simply walk in obedience towards God, our heart will get hard. If we walk in obedience and submit ourselves humbly before him, God will work in us soft hearts. Another thing I want to think about here in this idea of uh, soft hearts and hard hearts is we must not write people off who we think may have a hard heart. That would be the wrong thing for us to do, to think that a hard heart's gone way too far now, it's all over, nothing will happen. Exchange here is all about making disciples for Jesus Christ. We are here to uh, declare the glory of God through the gospel and to share this salvation that we have and the truth that we've received so that we can make disciples of Jesus. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works to soften hearts, but very often he uses us in that process to help soften hard hearts by the lives that we live. As we live a gospel-saturated life before our unsaved family or friends, whoever it might be, it is something the Holy Spirit begins to use to soften hard hearts or resistant hearts 
towards Jesus. A hard heart that resists Jesus can become soft. It really can when they see a visible demonstration of Jesus Christ working out and living out through our lives. It's incredible how God can use that. Quite potentially, all their rejection from a hard heart and all their callous thoughts towards Jesus or just their downright ignorant thoughts can be turned on their head as they see you or I living, serving and loving Christ and living, serving and loving them. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit uses us to actually soften their hearts. It's an incredible work that Christ does and the Spirit does within us. Conversely though, if we live an unrestrained life, if we live a life that really doesn't follow Christ, it will actually work in the reverse. It can serve to potentially further harden somebody's heart. So we have a great bearing in what what is taking place in their lives by simply the way we live. We can actually work to soften their hearts by living a Christ-like life or we can serve to harden their hearts in unrestrained or unchristian living before them. So we must never lose hope. We must never lose hope with anybody when it comes to salvation. We must never think that any heart is too hard or too far gone for the saving power of the gospel to have no effect. We must never think like that. God specialises in the humanly impossible outward circumstances of doing miracles. Just like the blind man was in an impossible human position with blindness, God, Jesus comes and does a miracle. Jesus was talking to the disciples uh, in the book of Mark and he's giving them a discussion there about a rich man. And the discussion there was how riches can serve to harden people's hearts. Nothing wrong with money per se, but it can become an instrument that the devil will use, our own flesh will take hold of, and use to, to harden our own hearts. People can get so caught up in making money, they absolutely have no time for Jesus. It's all work, it's all money, that's all my life's geared around, and that very quickly can serve to help harden their hearts uh, towards Jesus. So the disciples are saying, this is amazing. Jesus, how can, how can anybody be saved? And they respond, uh, and they say this to Jesus, and he responds like this. And they were exceedingly astonished here in Mark chapter 10. And they said to him, said to Jesus, then who can be saved? If it's so hard for a rich man to go into heaven, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. There is no heart that is too hard that God cannot melt or soften by his irresistible grace, as Dan prayed with that earlier on there. That's exactly what we're praying for. We're praying for this irresistible grace that God would reveal into these hard hearts and they will be softened and they will be pliable and they will come to see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ when he's truly seen, where he's truly seen in the gospel. And this is what um, God does. This is the truth that he uses. And it's, we may think it's impossible but he says there, for all things are possible with God. We never write off anybody that we perceive has a hard heart and is beyond uh, the gospel. No such thing when God is concerned. So today, let's not harden our hearts towards Jesus. That would be just an insane thing to do. Absolutely insane. We must not close down our minds to the truth of Jesus Christ. We must not listen to the voice of Satan and resist the call of Jesus Christ. 
it would be insane to do that. We need to be, the, as the blind man, who come to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today as we uh, reflect through John chapter 9, Lord, and we see uh, two different reactions. Two different reactions to the truth of Jesus and this miracle that Jesus has performed on the blind man as well. Uh, God, today I thank you that you sent your son Jesus and that he came into the world and I thank you that he restored the sight of this blind man 2,000 years ago. Father, I thank you for the uh, truth that Christ revealed in himself through that miracle, that he is truly the son of God. Uh, Lord, today I thank you that this blind man is saved and that every one of us who are in this building today who are a Christian will meet this man in heaven one day. Well, that is a great thought to think about. Today, Lord, I pray, give us soft hearts. God, give us hearts that are sensitive to your ways, hearts that are sensitive, Lord, to your truth, hearts that are sensitive to your leading, hearts that are sensitive, Lord, to the, to the plight of this world, hearts that are sensitive, Lord, to unsaved family members, as Alyssa just shares that with us again with her family. Lord, help us to have soft hearts towards this enormous need that surrounds us today. Lord, I pray that through us, as we submit ourselves to you, that you'll use us as your instruments to soften these hard hearts. God, we pray for your grace to flow through our lives, imperfect vessels as we are, Amazingly, you choose to use us and that you would allow your grace to flow through our lives to these people who we think are impossible to be saved. That, Lord, you would use our actions to some extent to show them Christ and to soften their hearts. Lord, today to think of those really lovely people, those nice people who are living next door to us, Lord, who sometimes we can forget about the hard hearts that they have because they seem such lovely people. Keep our eyes open to it, I pray. That, Lord, if they are outside of Christ, their hearts are hard and resistant to you. We pray, God, again, use us in that situation to uh, be an instrument, Lord, that would bring softness to their hearts and that you, you would use that to lead them to Christ. Lord, today, help us as a body of believers, as a church here in this greater shepherding community, Lord, to reach out to everybody. Uh, with the message of truth and pray that you would show us and reveal to us soft hearts and bring to us people soft hearts and that, Lord, we would be part of that process and seeing them come to faith, just as you've done with this blind man. Father, thank you for that today. Do ask it, do pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ben's going to come and uh, lead us around the communion table and Dan and Sam, you boys are on for the elements. If you could pass that out. Thanks. So I don't know how many of you had the opportunity in high school or maybe some of you were brave after high school to read the famous poem called The Divine Comedy by Dante. It's a medieval era, about 12, 1300, um, long poem broken into sort of three parts. And probably in our day and age, the most popular and the most famous is, is called The Inferno. And in the tale or the, the poem, the narrative poem of, of, of the Inferno, Dante, the main character and author, is 
sort of on the cusp of suicide. His life is in shambles, and God graciously gives him an opportunity to sort of discover what the meaning of life is, if you will. And he sends a poet named Virgil to guide him through the medieval concept of hell, purgatory, and heaven. And so the first, the first of the three parts is, is Dante's cruising down through the levels of hell as the medievals understood it. And the interesting thing in Dante and his understanding of, of hell is that as you move deeper and deeper into hell, the influence of Christ grows dimmer and dimmer. And in the sort of philosophical tradition that Dante was in, there was this idea that Christ or God was what they called the prime mover, the one that caused everything to happen, which we still hold to today. And so Dante pictures this, that as you go down into hell and Christ's influence, God's influence diminishes, the ability to move of the people at that layer also diminishes because they are no longer accepting the influence of Christ in their life. They are no longer able to move. They're setting up their own kingdom, but their own kingdom is hopeless. Until we get all the way down to the very center of hell, right to the very bottom of this upside-down cone, where Satan and Judas Iscariot and a few others um, find their residence. And at that point, they are so far away from the influence of Christ that the imagery is that Satan is frozen solid in the middle of a frozen lake, basically with the only movement is just a little tiny flex of you know, his demonic angel wings. Judas is stuck, kind of slightly flailing, you know, about to be you know, eaten by Satan. So why am I saying all this? Well, as we come to this scripture, and we're talking about the hardness of heart and the softness of heart, Dante kind of gets this. You know, as we move further and further away from the influence of Christ, like Dante pictures, we end up freezing our own hearts to the point where, you know, if we were as totally corrupt as Satan, our hearts would be completely dead and unmovable. That all of the passion and energy of the creator God who set the world exploding into being, brought life and humanity out of nothingness. All of that is so deadened in our soul that we can't even move. It moves us absolutely zero. On the flip side, as Dante moves into um, the third part in the Paradisia, which I haven't actually finished reading, the imagery is of the very opposite. The closer and closer that Dante moves in the paradise, in the heaven, the closer he gets to the eternal Christ, the more everything is lived and more colorful and passionate and more invigorating. And so that brings us to the table today, to the communion table. Because as we take communion, as we take the cup and the bread, this is an act of hardening or an act of softening.
the communion table is a point where we actively choose to partake in Christ. And yes, we can eat and we can drink. I mean, it's just a piece of bread and a bit of juice. And it will do nothing for us. In fact, it will actually harden us. Or we can take it in faith and remember what Christ has done for us and actively choose to partake in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, symbolized to the, the cup and the bread. And it's one small step in our, inter- our ongoing process of softening and becoming more Christ-like. So I encourage you as you take the cup and the bread to take a few seconds to think about whether you take this by faith as a softening agent or you take it as a duty or a, well, because it's there and as a hardening. It's a choice every time we take this cup. And I invite you to choose that now. And I'll pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come to your table, that for each of us who help us make the decision whether this act is an act of faith and an act of softening our heart before you, or is it an act of rebellion or indifference, and thus our hearts are hardening. Be glorified in our decision. Help us to make it by faith because we know that the source of all of this is from you. Help us to be responsive. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So yes, please take those elements as you feel led. Thanks, Ben. Um, just before Lauren comes up to uh, lead us in a song, if there's anybody who would like some prayer again or would love to catch up with me, more than happy to see you straight after the service uh, for anything like that. So uh, thanks, Lauren, as you come up and the, the rest of the crew. We'll sing glory again. As the chorus says, lift up your heads, open the doors, let the King of glory come in and forever be our God. Please stand. Please stand.